welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As usual, we'll have the same format. First, there'll be the story. Following the story, there'll be some analysis of the folklore and mythology from the story, and then the food in the story and some of the history about it. The story in this week's episode is The King of England and His Three Sons, as collected by Joseph Jacobs in More English Fairy Tales. I hope you enjoy it. Are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was an old king who had three sons, and the old king fell very sick one time, and there was nothing at all that could make him well but some golden apples from a far-off country. So the three brothers went on horseback to look for some of these apples. They set off together, and when they came to a crossroads, they halted and refreshed themselves a bit. And then they agreed to meet at a certain time, and not one of them was to go home before the other. So Valentine took the right, Oliver went straight on, and poor Jack took the left. To make my long story short, I shall follow poor Jack and let the other two take their chances, for I don't think there was much good in them. Off poor Jack rides over hills, dales, valleys and mountains, through woolly woods and sheep walks, where the old chap never sounded his hollow bugle horn farther than I can tell you tonight or ever intend to tell you. At last he came to an old house near a great forest, and there was an old man sitting out by the door and his look was enough to frighten you or anyone else, and the old man said to him, Good morning, my king's son. Good morning to you, old gentleman, was the young prince's answer. Frightened out of his wits though he was, he didn't like to be impolite. The old gentleman told him to dismount and to go in and have some refreshment, and to put his horse in the stable, such as it was. Jack soon felt much better about having something to eat, and began to ask the old gentleman how he knew he was a king's son. Oh dear, said the old man, I knew you were a king's son, and I know what your business is better than you do yourself, so you'll have to stay here tonight. And when you're in bed, you mustn't be frightened, whatever you may hear. There will come all manner of frogs and snakes, and some will try and get in your eyes and your mouth. But mind, don't stir the least bit, or you'll turn into one of those things yourself. Poor Jack did not know what to make of this, but however, he ventured to go to bed. Just as he thought to have a little bit of a sleep, round and over and under him they came, but he never stirred an inch all night. Well, my young lad, how are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. I didn't have much rest. Well, never mind that. You've gotten very well so far, but you've got a great deal to go through before you can have the golden apples to go to your father. You'd better come and have some breakfast before you start on your way to my other brother's house. You'll have to leave your own horse here with me until you come back again, and tell me everything about how you get on. After that came a fresh horse for the young prince, and the old man gave him a ball of yarn, and he flung it between the horse's two ears. Off he went as fast as the wind, which the wind behind could not catch the wind before, until he got to the second oldest brother's house. When he rode up to the door, he had the same salute as from the first old man, but this one was even uglier than the first one. He had long grey hair, and his teeth were curling out of his mouth, and his finger and toenails had not been cut for a many thousand years. He put the horse into a much better stable and called Jack in, gave him plenty to eat and drink, and they had a bit of a chat before they went to bed. Well, my young lad, said the old man, I suppose you're one of the king's children come to look for the golden apples to bring him back to health. Yes, I'm the youngest of three brothers, and I'd like to get them to go back with. Well, don't mind, young lad. Before you go to bed tonight, I'll send you to my eldest brother, and we'll tell him what you want, and he won't have much trouble in sending you on to the place where you must get the apples. But mind, not to stir tonight, no matter how you get bitten and stung, or else you'll work great mischief to yourself. The young young man went to bed and bore all as he did the first night, and got up the next morning well and hearty. After a good breakfast, out comes a fresh horse, and a ball of yarn to throw between his ears. The old man told him to jump up quick, and said he had made it all right with his eldest brother not to delay for anything whatsoever, for, he said, you have a good deal to go through in a very short and quick time. He flung the ball, like the man before, and off he went quick as lightning, and comes to the eldest brother's house. 
The old man received him very kindly and told him he long wished to see him and that he would go through his work like a man and come back safe and sound. Tonight, he said, I will give you rest and there nothing will come to disturb you so you may not feel sleepy for tomorrow and you must mind to get up middling early for you've got to go and come in all on the same day. There'll be no place for you to rest within thousands of miles of that place and if there was, you'd stand in great danger never to come from there in your own form. Now, my young prince, mind what I tell you. Tomorrow, when you come in sight of a very large castle, which will be surrounded with black water, the first thing you must do is tie your horse to a tree, and you will see three beautiful swans in sight, and you will say, Swan, swan, carry me over in the name of Griffin of the Greenwood, and the swans will swim you over to the earth. There'll be three great entrances, the third guarded by four great giants with drawn swords in their hands, the second by lions, the other by fiery serpents and dragons. You will have to be there exactly at one o'clock and mind and leave there precisely at two and not a moment later. When the swans carry you over to the castle, you will pass all these things, all fast asleep, but you must not notice any of them. When you go in, you will turn up to the right and you will see some grand rooms. Then you'll go downstairs, through the cooking kitchen and through a door. On your left, you'll go into a garden where you'll find the apples you want for your father to get well. After you fill your wallet, you can make all speed you possibly can, call out for the swans to carry you over the same as before. After you get on your horse, should you hear anything, and I mean anything, shouting or making noise after you, be sure not to look back as they will follow you for thousands of miles. But when the time is up and you get near my place, it will all be over. Now, my young man, I've told you all you have to do tomorrow. And mind, whatever you do, don't look about you when you see all those frightful things asleep. Keep a good heart and make haste from there and come back to me with all the speed you can. I should like to know how my two brothers were when you left them and what they said to you about me. Well, to tell the truth, before I left London, my father was sick and I said I was come here to look for golden apples, for they were the only things that would do him good. And when I came to your youngest brother, he told me many things I had to do before I came here. And I thought once your youngest brother put me in the wrong bed, when he put all those snakes to bite me all night long, until your second brother told me, so it was to be, and said it's the same here, but said you had none in your beds. Well, let's go to bed. You need not fear there are no snakes here. The young man went to bed. I had a good night's rest, thank goodness, and got up the next morning as fresh as a newly caught trout. Breakfast being over, out came the other horse, and while saddling and fettling, the old man began to laugh, and told the young gentleman that if he saw a pretty young lady, not to stay with her too long, because she might waken, and then he would have to stay with her, or be turned in one of those unearthly monsters like those he would pass going into the castle. You make me laugh so I can scarcely buckle the saddle straps. I think I'll be all right, my uncle, if I see a young lady there, you may depend. Well, my boy, I'll see how you get on. So he mounted his Arab steed, and off he goes like a shot out of a gun. At last he came inside to the castle. He tied his horse safe to a tree, pulled out his watch. It was then a quarter to one when he called out, Swan, swan, carry me over for the name of the old griffin of the greenwood. No sooner said it was done. A swan under each side and one in front took him over in a crack. He got on his legs and walked quietly by all those giants, lions, fiery serpents, and all manner of other frightful things too numerous to mention, while they were fast asleep. And that only for the space of one hour. When he went into the castle, he went neck or nothing. Turning to the right upstairs, he ran and into a very grand bedroom and saw a beautiful princess lying full stretch on a gold bedstead fast asleep. He gazed on her beautiful form with admiration and took her gold watch and pocket handkerchief and exchanged his for hers. After he ventured to give her a kiss when she was nearly opened her eyes, seeing the time short, off he ran downstairs and passing through the kitchen to go into the garden for apples, he could see the cook, all fours on her back in the middle of the floor, with a knife in one hand and a fork in the other. He found the apples, filled the wallet, and on passing through the kitchen, the cook near awakened, but he was obliged to make all the speed he possibly could, as time was nearly up, and Mahali was dallying with the princess. He called out for the swans, and they managed to take him over, but they found he was a little heavier than before. No sooner than he mounted his horse, he could hear a tremendous noise, 
The enchantment was broken, and they tried to follow him, but all to no purpose. He was not long before he came to the oldest brother's house, and glad enough he was to see it, for the sight and the noise of all those things that were after him nearly frightened him to death. Welcome, welcome, my boy, I'm proud to see you. Dismount and put the horse in the stable and come in and have some refreshments. I know you're hungry after all you've been through in that castle. And tell me all you did and all you saw there. Other king's sons went by here to go to that castle, but they never came back alive, and you're the only one that's ever broken the spell. And now you must come with me, a sword in your hand, and you must cut my head off, and then you must throw it in that well. The young prince dismounted, and he put his horse in the stable, and they went to have some refreshments, and I can assure you he wanted some. And after telling everything that passed, which the old gentleman was very pleased to hear, they both went for a walk together, the young prince looking round and seeing the place looking dreadful. As did the old man, he could scarcely walk from his toenails curling up like ram's horns that had not been cut for many hundred years, and big, long hair. They came to a well, and the old man gives the prince a sword, and tells him to cut his head off and throw it in that well. The young man had to do it against his wish. But he had to do it. No sooner had he flung the head in the well than up springs one of the finest young gentlemen you would wish to see. And instead of the old house and the frightful looking place, it was changed into a beautiful hall and grounds. And they went back and enjoyed themselves well and had a good laugh about the castle. The young prince left the young gentleman in all his glory, who told the young prince before leaving that he would see him again before long. They have a jolly shake hands and off he goes to the next oldest brother. And to make my long story short, he has to serve the other two brothers the same as the first. Now, the youngest brother began to ask him how things went on. Did you see my two brothers? Yes. How do they look? Oh, they look very well. I like them much. They told me many things to do. Well, did you go to the castle? Yes, my uncle. And will you tell me what you saw there? Did you see the young lady? Yes, I saw her and plenty of other frightful things. Did you hear any snake biting in my oldest brother's bed? No, there were none there. I slept well. You won't have to sleep in the same bed tonight, but you will have to cut my head off in the morning. The young prince had a good night's rest and changed all the appearance of the place by cutting his friend's head, head off before he started in the morning. A jolly shook hands. The uncle tells him it's very probable he'll see him again soon when he's not aware of it. This mansion was very pretty and the country around it was beautiful after his head was cut off. So off Jack went over hills, dales, valleys and mountains, very near losing his apples again. At last he arrived at the crossroads where he had to meet his brothers on the very day appointed. Coming up to the place, he saw no tracks of horses, and being very tired, lay himself down to sleep by tying the horse to his leg and putting the apples under his head. Presently, up come the other brothers, the same time and to the minute, and found him fast asleep, and they couldn't waken him up. But they said, one to another, let's see what sort of apples he's got under his head. So they took them and tasted them and found they were different to theirs. They took and changed his apples for theirs and off to London as fast as they could and left the poor fellow asleep. After a while he awoke and seeing the tracks of the other horses, he mounted and went off with them, not thinking anything about the apples being changed. He still had a long way to go. By the time he got near London, he could hear all the bells in the town ringing and didn't know what matters or he rode up the palace when he came to know his father was recovered by his brother's apples. When he got there, his brothers were off at some sports for a while and the king was glad to see his youngest son and very anxious to taste his apples. When he found out they were not good, and thought they were more for poisoning him, he sent immediately for the headsman to behead his youngest son, who was taken away there and then in a carriage. But, thankfully, instead of the headsman taking his head off, he took him to a forest not far from the town, because he had pity on him, and left him there to take his chance. The prince was sitting in the forest, feeling quite sorry for himself, as you would. And presently up came a big hairy bear, limping on three legs. The prince, poor fellow, shot up a tree, frightened. But the bear told him to come down, that it was no use for him to stop there. With some hard persuasion, Jack eventually came down, and the bear spoke to him again and said, Come here to me, 
I won't do you any harm. It's better for you to come with me and have some refreshments. I know you must be hungry all this time. The young prince said, No, I'm not hungry. I was very frightened when I saw you coming to me first, and I hadn't got a place to run away from you. The bear said, I was also afraid of you when I saw that gentleman set you down from the carriage. I thought you'd have guns with you, and you wouldn't mind killing me if you saw me. But when I saw the gentleman going away the carriage and leaving you behind by yourself, I made bold to come and see you, to see who you were. And now I know who you are very well. Aren't you the king's youngest son? I've seen you and your brothers lots of other gentlemen as would many times. Now, before we go from here, I must tell you that I am in disguise, and I will take you where we are stopping. The young prince was just so frustrated, and he had such a bad time. He didn't feel that he needed to be discreet, and he told him everything from first to last. How he'd started in search of the apples, about the three old men, about the castle, how he'd served at last by his father after he came home, and instead of the headsman taking his head off, he was kind enough to leave him his life. And here I am now, under your protection. The bear told him, Come on, my brother, there'll be no harm to you as long as you're with me. So he took him up to the tents, and when they saw him coming, the girls began to laugh and said, Here's our Jubal coming back with a young gentleman. When he advanced nearer the tents, they all knew he was the young prince that had passed by that way many times before. And when Jubal went to change himself, he called most of them together into one tent, told them all about him, and to be kind to him. And so they were. For there was nothing that he desired but what he had, the same as if he was in the palace with his father and mother. Jubal, after he pulled off his fairy coat, was one of the finest young men amongst them, and he was the young prince's closest companion. The young prince was always very sociable and merry, only when he thought of the gold watch he had from the young princess in the castle, and which he had lost he knew not where. He passed off many happy days in the forest, but one day he and poor Jubal were strolling through the trees when they came to the very spot where they first met and accidentally looking up, he saw his watch hanging in the tree, where he'd had to climb when he first saw the bear coming to him in the form. And he cried out, Jubal, I can see my watch up in that tree. Well, that's lucky, exclaimed Jubal. Should I go and get it down? No, I'd rather go myself, said the young prince. Now, whilst all this was going on, the young princess in that castle, seeing that one of the King of England's sons had been there by the changing of the watch, got herself ready with a large army and sailed for England. She left her army a little out of town, and went with her guards straight up to the palace to see the king, and also demanded to see his sons. They had a long conversation together about different things, and at last she demanded one of the sons to come before her. And the oldest one comes, and she says, Have you ever been to the castle of Melvales? And he answers, Yes. She throws down a pocket handkerchief and bids him walk over it without stumbling. He goes to walk over it, and no sooner did he put his foot on it, than he fell down and broke his leg. He was taken off immediately and made a prisoner by her own guards. The other was called upon and was asked the same questions and had to go through the same performance and he was also made a prisoner of. Now, she said, have you not got another son? When the king began so to shiver and shake and knock his knees together that he could scarcely stand upon his legs, he didn't know what to say to her. He was so much frightened. At last, a thought came to him to send for his headsman and to inquire of him particularly, you know, I told you to behead my son, which I appreciate was probably a bit rash, but did you actually behead him or is he still alive? He's saved, O king. Then bring him here immediately or else I shall be done for. Two of the fastest horses were put in the carriage to go and look for the poor prince. When they got to the spot they left him, it was the time when the prince was up the tree, getting his watch down, and poor Jabal standing a distance off. They cried out to him, had he seen another young man in the wood? Jabal, seeing such a nice carriage, thought something and didn't like to say no, and said yes, pointed up at the tree, told him to come down immediately as there was a young lady in search of him. Ah, did you ever hear anything else from my life, my brother? Do you call him your brother? Well... He's been a lot better to me than my actual brothers. Well, for his kindness, he should accompany you to the palace and see how things turn out. After they got to the palace, the prince had a good wash and appeared in front of the princess. And she asked him, Had you ever been to the castle of Melvales? With a smile upon his face, he gave a graceful bow 
and says, My lady, walk over that handkerchief without stumbling. He walks over it many times, dances upon it, nothing happened to him. She said with a proud and smiling air, That is the young man, and out came the objects exchanged by both of them. Presently she orders a very large box to be brought in and be opened, and out come some of the most costly uniforms that were ever worn on Emperor's back. And when he dressed himself up, the king could scarcely look upon him from the golden diamonds on his coat. He ordered his two brothers to be put in prison for a period of time, because they had behaved, frankly, very badly. And before the princess asked him to go with her to her own country, she paid a visit to the bear's camp, and she made some very handsome presents for the kindness of the young prince. And she gave Jubal an invitation to go with him, which he accepted. Wished them all a hearty farewell for a while, promising them all to see them again sometime. They went back to the king and bid farewell, and told him not to be so hasty another time, to order people to be beheaded without having a proper cause for it. They probably thought he'd learn his lesson by now. Off they went with all their army with them, and while the soldiers were striking their tents, the prince thought of his Welsh harp, and had it sent for immediately to take with him in a beautiful wooden case. They called to see each of those three brothers who the prince had stayed with when he was on his way to the castle of Melvale, and I can assure you, when they all got together, they had a very merry time of it. And there we will leave them. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So... What did you think of this week's tale? The source of this tale is a Romany fairy tale collected by Joseph Jacobs in More English Fairy Tales. He listed in his source Francis Hines Groom's In Gypsy Tents, where the informant was John Roberts, a Welsh Roma. The tale told in Gypsy Tents includes more involvement from the Roma clans, and indeed the old men who helped Jack in the story are also said to be Roma. Jack also spends time with the Roma families after he is sentenced to death by his father, and after his brothers have betrayed him, and that's where he learns his skills on the Welsh harp. Although Joseph Jacobs credits the Roma history here, he does remove most of the references to Roma and the Roma families in the tale itself, leaving it a little bit disjointed in parts. There's also another version in Ruth Manning Sanders' collection, The Red King and the Witch, but sadly I wasn't able to track down a copy in time to compare it. This is yet another Jack tale, but it does have some other fairy tale elements. The betrayal of the youngest prince by his feckless elder brothers, as well as the assistance received from three strangers in his task. There are some similarities to the jealous brothers in the golden castle that floated in the air, in that the sleeping princess comes to find her new beloved after he has been betrayed by his brothers. This princess also has an army which can hold the country to ransom and is not fooled by the pretenses of Jack's elder brothers. She doesn't have a child in this version, but does in the Gypsy Tent's tale. There is a touch of the original Sleeping Beauty tale here where the princess becomes pregnant whilst under an enchanted sleep and bears a child. There's too much to unpack in that version of the tale here, but suffice it to say there are some significant problems with it when viewed through modern mores. This tale differs from the Golden Castle significantly in that the princess is an added extra for Jack to win. The quest to find the golden apples is the main story here, and the men who help Jack on his way are more focused on that. Well, they'll just take a side trip to look at the request from Jack's helpers to cut off their heads so that they can regain their youth and riches. This is slightly unusual, because it's often a fate of magically enchanted animal helpers rather than humans. Jack doesn't seem to put up much of a fight either. We should take a closer look at the golden apples now, as they are the focus of the quest. Apples are a significant item in folklore, myth and legend across the world, definitely not limited to the British Isles. They are probably the symbol of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, I say probably, because many scholars now agree that the fruits are much more likely to have been figs or pomegranates. They're the symbol of yeast to the Norse pantheon in the form of Idun's apples that keep them useful. In fact, when Idun is kidnapped from Asgard, all the gods age very quickly. The apples of the Hesperides in Greece fulfil a similar function in that they grant the gift of immortality to anyone that eats them. They were also particularly important to the myths of the Celts, with numerous heroes being carried off by otherworldly women as they slept under apple trees. 
Gods and goddesses from Tinanog were often depicted carrying an apple branch with golden apples and tinkling leaves so musical that it lulled humans to sleep when they heard it. Amain Ablach is said to be an island paradise where apples grow at the same time as apple blossoms bloom. It's also the home of Mahmanan Maclear, the Irish sea god and king of the other world. The magical silver apple branch given to Bran in the voyage of Bran is also said to come from Amain Ablach. Golden apples of immortality also appear in Avalon, where King Arthur was taken after he was fatally wounded in his last battle, according to Thomas Mallory's 15th century tale of Arthur and Camelot. The name Avalon comes from the Celtic, Celtic prefix av, or af, which means apple. There are at least 46 British place names that have some connection to apples, including Avon, Aviemore, Appledore, and Applesham, which demonstrates the importance of them to the Celts, and later the Anglo-Saxons. There is one caveat in all this. In Middle English, as late as the 17th century, the word apple was used as a generic term to describe all other fruit rather than berries. So the appearance of apples in ancient writings may not actually be the apples known today. Certainly, apples in the British Isles were crab apples rather than the juicy sweet apples we think of. It's believed they came over with the Romans, but they originated in the area around Almaty in Kazakhstan. The name of the city even translates as father of apples. I could also explain that the way we consistently get certain types of apples through a technique known as grafting. I could, but I won't, because I don't necessarily understand it, so I'll refer to it as apple magic, just like the ceremony of wassailing, or divining, for husbands mostly. Apples become important to the Romans because they were important to the ancient Greeks. They became important to the Greeks because Alexander the Great became enamoured of them due to his exposure to them as part of the Persian culture. Although we got apples from the Romans, after the Roman Empire fell and the British Isles returned to more local government, it was probably only monasteries who kept our apple varieties alive. The battles that took place in the power vacuum after the Romans left did not show any respect for agriculture generally, or apple orchards in particular. You should probably look at some recipes. Like most fruits, there was some concern about eating them uncooked, and a lot of apples used to make cider, as like ale it purified the water due to alcohol to some extent, and unlike ale did not use a lot of fuel. Some of the early tart recipes have some interesting combinations, such as apples, pears, raisins, figs, and then, totally unexpected to our modern palate, salmon or haddock. Some are more recognisable, however. Manuscript Deuce 257 is an English manuscript containing recipes from 1381 and has a recipe for apple tart, which contains cooked down apples with dried fruit, pears, spices and saffron in a pastry case. I mean, a hard, very inedible pastry case, but still. This is very similar to a recipe in form of curry from 1390, so even the king was enjoying a nice apple tart in medieval times. I'm going to surprise you by not entering into the cheese and apple pie discussion, even though I really want to question the person that thought the tradition came from the English tradition of serving apple pie with custard. I'll spare you the rest of my thoughts, they're not very polite. I must also admit that I'm not actually a fan of apple pie or crumble. I'd much rather have raspberry rhubarb or gooseberry crumble any day. Apple is a fantastic accompaniment to pork, I don't really eat much pork, although I do enjoy a pork and apple sausage. I'm very happy with an apple-based chutney too. I think, though, that we'll look at apple cake because it's nice and it's a great alternative to crumble. My recipe uses Bramley cooking apples, so it's not overly sweet, and it's more of a, a Dorset apple cake than a German apple cake, as the apple sort of dissolves into the mixture. And with that, I think we've really reached the end of this episode. As I always ask, if you do have time and would like to rate and review the podcast, it's really helpful because it helps other people to find the podcast. Also, though, just be a reminder that all resources are available on the podcast notes, including a link to Romany Arts, which has a fan- is a fantastic resource for Gypsy, Roma and Traveller storytelling. For the next few weeks, 
We will have episodes, but they will just be stories without some of the analysis and the history and the recipes that you're used to. This is to give me a little bit of a break so I can put something really special together for you um, for September when I'll be back with episodes as normal. But for the next few weeks, I hope you listen to and enjoy the stories and I can't wait to hear from you in September. And thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. (laughs) 